0: When we began our study through the Bible, it seemed like a long course. But today we complete the Old Testament. Uh, We're looking at the 39th book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The Bible took about 1,600 years to be written. 1,200 of those years was the writing of the Old Testament. Over 30 authors and 39 books and today we look at the final book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Let's open our Bibles, please. If you want to start in the in Matthew and go back one book to Malachi, you will find it quite easily. It's an amazing thing to think that following Malachi, it was only 400 years before the birth of Christ. Some have called that the silent years. They weren't silent. God wasn't silent. He's never silent. God is the Word. He's always speaking. He was speaking during those times, but He wasn't writing books of the Bible. So this is the final book of the Bible written 400 years. It was completed before the birth of Christ. And it points to the birth of Christ in several places, as we'll see this morning. Malachi is conversational. Ten times God speaks and then the people respond and then God answers them. Ten times in the book of Malachi. And it tells us something about how interactive God is. Chapter one, verse two. But you ask, how have we, have you loved us? God says, I have loved you. And the people respond, but how have you loved us? Verse 6, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Verse 7, but you ask, how have we defiled you? Chapter 2, verse 14, you ask, why? Verse 17, how have we wearied you? Chapter 3, verse 7, but you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8, but you ask, how do we rob you? Verse 13, yet you ask. What have we said against you? These conversations between God and his people, it ought to tell us something about the nature of God. We are conversational because God is. God loves to engage us in conversation. God is a great question asker. He asks us very invasive questions on every level. If you know anything about God, you know that He probes because He wants to get to know us better. Sometimes we're afraid to ask Him any questions. But here we see that He welcomes that. He can read our minds, whether we come out and say it or not. God knows deep down what we're asking when He speaks, and He wants to call us into that kind of dialogue. The book of Malachi clearly underscores that in the way it's written. It's written as a dialogue and calls us into dialogue with God. If you're a skeptic, if you doubt the things that God is saying, maybe you were raised in the church and it hasn't Proven to be 100% real to you. There's things about God or things that you were taught as a child that still don't make sense to you. Well, you have a God who doesn't mind you asking honest questions. That's the book of Malachi. The asking of these very sincere questions. Now when you look at the book of Malachi, there are four chapters. They're really like four pages. A chapter in most of our books may be 12 to 20 pages. A chapter in the Bible is normally one. So we're talking about very small chapters, but there's only four of them. And they each tackle what could be considered a hot potato issue. Chapter 1 tackles worship. Chapter 2, marriage. Chapter 3, money. Chapter 4 tackles the whole area of parenting. These are hot potato issues. They're issues that a lot of people shy away from. But God doesn't mind getting down into the areas where you and I live and answer the hard questions of life. Chapter 1, worship. Chapter 2, marriage. Chapter 3, money. Chapter 4, parenting. And if you notice... Between chapters, it switches from the vertical relationship between us and God and horizontal relationship between us and others. Chapter one is vertical. Chapter two is horizontal. Chapter three is vertical. Chapter four is horizontal. And this is the way God deals with us. It's the essence of life. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What is our chief responsibility to God? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and most important commandment. That's the vertical. And second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal. And when God deals with us, He deals with us on the vertical and on the horizontal. In fact, He'll go from one to the other. He doesn't expect us to get it all right with him and then for us to switch and get it all right with each other. He gets it a little better with him and then a little better with each other and then a little better with him and a little better with each other. And that's the way that God deals with us. And that's the way Malachi reinforces that pattern. He doesn't expect us to be perfect in our relationship with God before he deals with us on a horizontal relationship. And I have found in my own life that God, it's like peeling an onion. He gets down deeper with me and deeper. And He deals with one layer and He deals with my relationship with Him. And He calls me into deeper intimacy. And then He starts working on my marriage. And it's just when I think I'm a perfect husband, He shows me I'm not. And I've got some room for improvement. And so, yeah, I'm working on that. And then He comes back and deals with my relationship with Him. And that's the way God deals with us. It's kind of, it's 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 deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. We're never going to be perfect in our relationship with God until we're with Him forever in heaven. And we're never going to have a perfect marriage. In fact, the best marriage are those that realize they're not perfect, but they're willing to work on it. How many of you don't have a perfect marriage? I saw I saw some wife go like this. But I won't say where I saw that. Yesterday, Sherry and I celebrated 39 years. And no, no, I did not airbrush that photo I posted on Facebook. For those of you that saw me, you thought it was a picture of one of our sons. But that was really me way back in a former life. That was really me. But I praise God for our marriage. But I continue, I recognize that I am not perfect. And when Sherry says, honey, you got some room for improvement here, I shouldn't come across like I've got to defend my perfection. I'm not perfect. Let's let's just get over that. If we can get over that, we can get on with with living together. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, with that understanding, let's dig in. Chapter 1, worship. Worship. It all starts with God. And God says... Malachi 1 verse 2, I have loved you. Now wouldn't you think if if you're a child of God and God says to you, "I have loved you," you know, what would your response be? Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Or, "Oh, I know you've loved me. I I appreciate it." But these guys, it's almost like a belch. Instead of saying, "Thank you very much," they say How have you loved us? I mean, that's pretty bad. But God doesn't mind. God doesn't mind when we keep it real, when we're raw, when we're authentic, when we just lay it out there. I know you probably do, but I don't get it. It's not working for me. So how have you loved us? And then God clarifies exactly how he's loved us. Then we come to chapter 1, verse 6. Verse 6 is a precursor to chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6 is where we're going to end up, talking about fathers and their sons and daughters. But chapter 1, verse 6 uses the parent-child relationship on the vertical to talk about our relationship with God. You see, even in the Old Testament, God referred to Himself as Father. This did not, it was taken to a higher level in the New Testament, but it's embedded in the Old Testament, and there we have it. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And this is God talking, if I as God am a father, where is the honor due me? If I as God am the master, where is the respect due me? And God saw that there was such dishonor and such disrespect toward Himself from the people of God that He says, by the time He gets to verse 10, it would be better if someone came and put padlocks on your door and didn't let anybody come into the church anymore. Imagine you showed up and there's padlocks on the door when you came to church this morning. Who put these padlocks there? God. Can you imagine? That would be pretty bad. But that's what God's saying here to the believers in Malachi's day. It would be better if you stopped meeting. Specifically, he says, I don't want you anymore to light the fire on the altar. Now, the fire on the altar was very important. That fire represented the tangible, manifest presence of God among God's people that was never supposed to go out. You remember when Moses first met God in the burning bush? He he heard the voice crying out to him in a bush that he'd passed many days. But on this day, God was in the bush. God was in the fire. And later, God led Moses up on the mountain, and the whole mountain was covered with fire, both in the bush and on the mountain. That fire was the manifest presence of God. Elijah called down fire. The God who answers by fire, he is God. That fire that came down, that was the presence of God. Here, the fire on the altar was representing the tangible, explicit, conspicuous, manifest presence of God. And God's saying here, look it, I don't want that fire there anymore. I know I told you a long time ago to keep the fire burning, but I don't want that fire anymore because I am not present with you. Now that is a high level of judgment that God had against the people of Israel. Israel. At this time, their worship was so putrid that he didn't even want to be identified with them. Because they lost touch with the love of God and everything else began washing out. Now we're going to jump from chapter 1 to keep it on the vertical here to chapter 3, just so we don't lose track. When he comes to chapter 3, he says, return to me, return to me. Verse 6 and 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Then in typical conversational pattern, the next verse, the people ask, how shall we return? And God gives them an answer that they may not have been expecting. I want you to return by bringing to me your tithe and your offering. Now, this is when God goes to meddling, as we say here in the South. He's gone to meddling. Well, if your God doesn't meddle with you, uh, let me introduce you to the true God who does. This isn't a preacher's problem. This is God. He, he's, he meddles. He gets down to where uh, life meets reality. And he says, there's a connection here between your worship and your wallet You may never have seen this. In fact, let me just tell all of us this morning, if you've never graduated to recognizing that it's not, okay, your six-day-a-week life and then your one-day-a-week where you go and put in an hour with God, if, if you've never seen the connection between your worship and your wallet, today's your lucky day. When, when we don't see the connection, we're in trouble. When we think that there is somehow, that's what I do for God and then the rest I do for myself. When we lose the connection, we are in serious trouble. In fact, the whole thing of our religious life is nothing but hypocrisy. It's a hollow shell. It's a big phony charade. Now, follow this. He says, okay, so we're robbing you. Um, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? I want you to bring the whole tithe. And then he says, it's the only place you'll find it in the Bible. Test me. Yes. Now, we know the Bible says don't test God. You should never test God. You know, you don't have to test him. You know, you can test, you can take a, a car for a test drive. You don't take God for a test drive. You don't, you don't need to. He's reliable. Because there's only one. You're not going to take Him for a test drive, and if you don't like Him, you'll go look for another God. There is no other God. So you, you take Him or leave Him. You don't have to test Him. But in this, this is the only place in the Bible where God gives us permission to test Him, and the reason is because it's so important. And then He says, test me and see if I don't throw open the floodgates and pour out such a blessing on you that you won't have storehouses big enough to contain all the blessing I'm going to give you. But then by the time he gets to verse 14, he really gets to the heart of the issue. Verse 14 says, You have said... Now here's this dialogue going on between them and God again, but now we're getting down underneath the whole thing. You have said, God's telling them, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord God Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed, certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. There's no payoff. God, by serving You, it's futile. It's a waste of time. We serve you and we've got nothing to show for it. That's how they felt because they so dichotomized life into the secular and the sacred. They divided their week into pieces and they divided their lives into segments. This we do for God, this we do for ourselves, our worship and our wallets. And they said there is no connection between the two. They were so ripped off. They were so deceived. They had sold themselves so short. They completely missed the point. Now, what God is trying to do is to connect the two. And Jesus took the two and laid them right on top of each other. And he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your real treasure is your wallet, then that's where your heart is. You're worshiping your money. He says you can't worship and serve two masters. You're going to love one be devoted to the other or hate the one and despise the other, but you can't serve two masters. He he says you got to... What he goes on to say is, don't you know that your heavenly Father feeds and clothes the birds and the lilies And are you not much more important than they? No, if you seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. What's Jesus trying to do in all of that is lay them both on top. That your wallet and your worship need to come together. You can't live two separate lives. If you don't see the connection between God and your job, your employment your business life, your home life, your investments, the fact that the one true God is the one who gives us the ability to earn, He gives us earning power, He gives us wisdom for investments, it's the one true God who is ultimately the provider of all things, that's when our lives completely overlap. That's what God intends. No, I want to encourage you, if you have never seen the connection if you've tried your best to keep them separate you're being ripped off i want you to know that the one true god is your financial provider he's your job search engine phooey you've got the lord He will provide for you. He will care for you. And part of your test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven is to give him a tenth of what he gives to you. Now, when you're a kid, that's easy. You get a ten dollar for your birthday. You give God one. You can't do much with one anyway. Go ahead and give it to him. Your earning power increases. You make a hundred bucks a week. You're in high school, middle school. You, in the, during the summer you make a hundred bucks a week. Okay, you give them ten. You can't do much with ten anyway. But you get older and you're earning power, you make a thousand a week. Some of us make five thousand a week. Okay, then you're talking a chunk. You can do a lot with a, th- you know, that, that's a hundred bucks. That's my, that's my cell phone bill and and, and, a, and a bunch of other things. And I, I, You know, a couple couple months there, I can buy a flat screen, I can buy a new iPad, I, I can buy a lot with that. No, the, the whole thing, for those of us who meet Christ when we're 30, 40, 50, in those main earning years, tithing is like, are you kidding me? I can barely make it now. Now you're telling me to, to give God 10%. How's it going to work? Now, for those of us that were raised in a Christian home and our parents taught us, you know, you got a buck, you, you give 10 cents to God. You got your banks. you Praise God for all that. It's all good. But it's easy when you're little. What can you do with a buck? Well, you can't do much with 10. Okay, You get 100, you give them 10. But then when it's a thousand, you give them a hundred, then it's like, are you kidding me? I had the blessing. God's looked out for me. When I was first saved, I worked that following summer at a church day camp. I didn't even know they were going to pay me. At the end of the time, they gave me a decent little wad. For me, I mean, I was 15. What do I know? I, I I got a nice little wad. That Sunday I went to church, I had my wad. I heard a great sermon. After the sermon, they took the offering. I put the whole wad in the offering plate. That next day, my mother takes me back to school shopping. Summer's over, back to school. And there were two items I wanted. She says, well, you can buy that. And then I thought back, I can't buy that. And I, th- I thought about what I put in the offering. And I thought, rats. Rats. I don't have that wad. Now, I can't take time to tell the whole story, but by the, I, I never told anybody. By the time I got back to school, I had those two items that I wanted. God provided. And I never looked back. And because I learned young, not necessarily to give everything, but to give the chunk. Give God His. It was easy as the numbers got up. But I understand for those of us that come to Christ later in life, it's hard to believe that God will enable you to do more with the 90% that's left than you could have with the 100% on your own. You could have a whole bunch of stories here this morning. And it's not that God's poor and needs your money, but He wants your heart. He wants your trust. Do you trust Him? The coolest thing... Let me let me flip this over so you can see it from God's perspective. If you're sitting there this morning thinking, Are you kidding me? I've got to give 10% of my salary? Are you kidding me? If you're looking at it that way, I want to just spin it from God's perspective. No, you don't have to. You get to. To me, that's the coolest thing in the world. That we get to. That God enables it. God makes it work. That God enables us to be able to give that freely back to Him. And it's not that He wants our money. He wants our heart. And He knows where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Praise God. Now we get to the family. Chapters 2 and chapter 4. Chapter 2 is some of the meatiest material ever written on marriage. It's, it clearly positions marriage as being God's invention. This is why we can't allow our government to try to redefine marriage. The government didn't institute marriage. God did. It's the first thing he instituted before he instituted any government, before he instituted any military, any educational system, before he instituted any other organization, he instituted marriage. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the first institution God established, and that's the only way you can properly define marriage. Anything else is not marriage. It may be a civil union, but it's not marriage. And it's not up to Washington, D.C. to define that because they didn't invent it. They're crossing the line if they try to define that. This is what God established, and it's a cornerstone of civilization. There has never been a civilization in history that condoned homosexual marriage that survived. None. And if you think we should, you're out to destroy our civilization. God forbid. And it may be that we as believers are the only ones that live that way. Well, that's not the first time. We love everyone. But you don't go messing with the cornerstone of civilization. That's not loving. Maybe tolerant, but it's not loving. We defend it because we defend the sanctity of life and the sanctity of sexuality and the sanctity of marriage. And it's for the preservation of people. It's for the health of civilization. That's why God says in Malachi chapter 2, I hate divorce. Of course you hate divorce. God ought to hate divorce. Anybody that's ever been through one hates divorce. This is why we love those and reach out and help those that have been through divorce. Who have suffered the casualties of divorce. It's it's our compassionate response to those who are hurting. No, God says here in Malachi... Chapter 2, verse 14. The Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. I fixed Sherry an omelet on our anniversary. I served it to her on our porch. And as I held it out to her, I said, this is for the wife of my youth. Hallelujah. I'm not young anymore. She's not as young as she used to be, but she's still the wife of my youth. Amen? Hallelujah. And she's my marriage partner, it says here, verse 14, by covenant. This whole thing of living together before you're married, that's messed up. You say, what's a piece of paper? It's not a piece of paper, it's the covenant. Until you take a covenant, until you take the vow, you're not married and you don't have the rights to marriage. Two young people that love each other. The one says, well, let's live together. Well, not till we're married. And then the one will say, well, what's a piece of paper? No, it's not a piece of paper. It's the covenant. Are you ready to make a covenant to me? If you're not, I'm not going to sleep with you. It's, it's your, your wife by covenant, your husband by covenant. That's the foundation of marriage. It's by covenant. It says it right here. And by the way, this is the only place in the Bible that explicitly says that. Verse 14. It's all there. It's beautiful. And look at, again, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. The witness, this is so profound. He's right there as the witness. What God has joined together, let no man separate, God says. He's the witness. He's the one holding us together. And to witness over that marriage covenant, the vow, the Lord has made them one. There's that affirmation of what He said way back in Genesis. And why one? Because the Lord was seeking godly offspring. This is so powerful. Children were not an afterthought. God was seeking godly offspring. And I love it that it's godly offspring. We're not just talking about offspring. I saw a bumper sticker. It made me turn around and follow the guy. The Bumper sticker said... Any man can have babies. But it takes a real man to be a father. I'm driving by. What was that? I stepped on the brake and made room and got behind the guy and just sat there at the next light. Any man can have babies. It takes a real man to be a father. Why one Why marriage? Why take a woman from her family and a man from his family that they can be one and have physical union? Is it just for babies? Is it just for offspring? No. Because God wants godly offspring. Godly offspring. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. Not just knowing how to perform on cue as good church kids, but godly offspring. Now we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the last chapter before Jesus is born. And it's no wonder it talks over and over again about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Verse 2 is so beautiful. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. It's this Glorious picture of a dawning of a new day, the dawning of the day when when Jesus the sun rise of righteousness rise with healing in his wings if you 've seen the sunrise. And the sun rays coming up like wings, that's the picture of Jesus coming as the Son of Righteousness. The dawning of the new era that He's going to bring about 400 years after this was written. And the impact that He will have on His people. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Have you ever felt that way? Has the Lord ever set you free from something? Has He ever set you free from the bondage of sin, of guilt and shame? And you just had to get up and dance. You just had to let it out. You had to go leaping out and and jump like a calf. Jumping out into the sunlight, out of the stall. A calf cooped up inside and now is, is able to go dance and run around the pasture. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus does for us. And then, then we come to verses five and six. See, I will send the prophet Elijah. Before the Messiah, I'm going to send, and this is of course referring to John the Baptist, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It was hard for me to swallow that the last word in the Old Testament is curse. Curse. Oh, please. Does it have to be curse? I don't like curse. And then I realized that every chapter in the book of Malachi issues a curse. It's there. Verse 14. Cursed is the cheat. Chapter 2, verse 2. I will send a curse. Chapter 3, verse 9, you are under a curse. Chapter 4, verse 6, if this doesn't happen, I will send a curse on the land. It's good to realize that the Old Testament may end with curse, but the New Testament ends with blessing. Four weeks today, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. We've got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation. Coming down the home stretch. We've got four books to go. Hope you'll stay tuned. The book of the Revelation has seven blessings. The book of Malachi may have four curses, but the book of Revelation has seven blessings. It begins with a blessing and it ends with a blessing, and there's five in between. We'll save that for them. But here, and all these curses that end the Old Testament are all the consequences of sin. If you choose to have it your way instead of God's way, there's going to be negative consequences. That's where the curse, the reality check comes in. But here is the promise. He, it's God through this Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, I want us to understand this. The key to parenting is parenting your child's heart. That's worth writing down. The key to parenting is parenting your child's heart. If you lose their heart, they won't listen to you. There's times where their hearts will depart. And you can feel it. And then you get it back. There's times where you have to let it go. And there's times where you have to let it go and it doesn't come back. Some of us sitting here this morning have children whose hearts have left, and you know that. There's nothing chillier to the heart of a mother or a heart of a father than when they feel their heart of their child go. You can feel it. It's chilly. There's nothing more chilling than when the heart of a child goes. It's like, can we sit down? Can we talk? You're not listening. I'm not connecting. We're not connecting here, are we? No. You can just feel it. Stewarding our child's heart is the key to parenting. But when it's gone, it is almost impossible to get it back. That's why this is talking about a miracle. And for any of you who you may... The teenage years may yet be in the distance and you're thinking, man, I'm gonna be, I'm scared to death of those teenage years. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. Because God will turn their hearts back. It's His job. It's impossible to you, but it's not impossible to Him. But notice it doesn't start with them, it starts with us. The first miracle God works in every parent, in every family unit, God wants to work in the Father. And for those single moms, this would certainly apply to you as well. The heart of the single mothers. Because there are times when parenting gets so difficult that parents can say things in anger, say things in the heat of discussion, the intense moments I don't ever want to talk to you again. I don't ever want to see you again. Those things come out of our mouths. Oh, and we later regret those things. But in the heat of discussion, those things come out. And what God wants to do is, first of all, turn the heart of the parent back to the child. To where that heart regrets what was said. That heart wants the child back. That heart of the parent wants back in. They can't make it happen, but they at least are turned to where they want them back. And Part of the reason why God has to do that is because so many of us were raised in families where we weren't parented properly ourselves. And we don't know how to do parenting. We don't know how to pull it off. We don't know how to keep the hearts of our children because our parents didn't keep our heart. And we frankly, we we shy away from them. We don't want to get too close to that. Only God can deal that deeply and turn our hearts back to our children. And then God wants to turn their hearts back to us as well. We're talking a deep work here. This is a miracle. It's a miracle that God wants some of you to see this morning and ask Him for. To invite into your family situation, to turn, to work at that deep level, to turn your heart back to them and to turn their heart back to you. And it may have been so long since that happened that you may think, Oh, I wish he'd go on and close, and I can't wait to get out of here. No, just hold on a second. This is for you. Don't push it off. Don't be afraid to get too close. God wants to work this in you and He wants to work it in your child. This is His will. Pray it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth in my family, in my heart, in my child's heart, as it is in heaven. Oh, this is a powerful promise. And what could be more important to us here on Father's Day, than this promise. Some of us may be living in a situation that's very complex. We may have been through a divorce. We're in a remarriage situation. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of issues. This opens up a whole big Pandora's box. But God can handle it. He's bigger than Pandora's box. And from his perspective, he's never known a Pandora's box. God sees perfectly. He knows your heart. He knows what you feel deeply about. And he is able to intervene in your life and in your situation today. This is a Father's Day gift. This is a blessing for you to know that there is a heavenly Father that knows how every father's heart on earth is wired and can minister His heart to your heart and to your child's heart. That's good news. Let's pray together.